0: well good morning everyone good to see you this morning good to be in god's word again together here we are uh we're coming back one more time lord willing to uh the subject of forgiveness here today not that we'll never deal with it again it sort of comes up a lot in the bible right um but we're going to try to wrap up this, what's become, a brief series on forgiveness and uh, the way to become a more forgiving people. We're going to wrap that little series up here today. This series started as a, a single sermon back a few weeks ago where we looked together at Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 and 13 and God's command there to become more gracious and forgiving people. But as often happens when this subject is addressed, a number of questions were raised by what was said in that sermon. Uh, questions mostly about how to forgive someone in, in the more complicated situations of life, situations where the sins committed against you have been very serious and maybe very damaging and even repetitive since the situations that are often uh, quite raw and they're very real and complex and sort of foggy. And so a couple of Sundays ago we started walking through some of the main biblical principles about forgiveness to help clear some of that fog that tends to gather in our hearts and Minds in situations where forgiveness is called for and where forgiveness is commanded uh, by God. And we started a couple of Sundays ago with like 101 level principles, basic stuff, low hanging fruit, uh, three principles in fact. So, just by way of review, first we said that for forgiveness to be required, actual sin has to have been committed. Uh, that's that's key. If it's not sin on the other person's part, it doesn't need to be forgiven. It needs to be just put up with, and uh, patience needs to be shown. So that was first. For forgiveness to be required, actual sin has to be committed. Secondly, we said that for forgiveness to be required, simple forbearance must not be reasonable. Forbearance is just putting up with people. And uh, we should be doing that a lot with one another. That's what you are called to do most often with fellow sinners. Is just be patient with them. Just put up with them. Don't, don't make a big deal out of their sins and their sinful proclivities. And then third, we said that for forgiveness or that forgiveness in many situations, and I think we could probably say most situations, forgiveness should be purely proactive and unconditional. So in many situations, you just need to go ahead and commit to do good to the person who has sinned against you, regardless of whether they see what they've done, and regardless of whether they're sorry about what they've done. Okay, so the, those were the three principles we started with. That's where we left off two Sundays ago, sort of bottom shelf stuff, the more basic of principles, not easy to practice by any means, but basic in their, in their uh, substance today though we 're going to get into the weeds a little bit, and so if God wills it today I want to cover some more principles about forgiveness and get into situations where offering and granting forgiveness to those who sin against us may be and probably will be significantly more difficult so we're going to try continuing uh, try to continue clearing the fog of forgiveness together with these principles, and we're just going to get right into it. Um, first, piggybacking off the last principle we considered last time, we should say that forgiveness is often merely a proactive commitment of the heart. That forgiveness is often merely a proactive commitment of the heart. We spent some time two Sundays ago looking at the reasons why in many situations forgiveness should be proactive and unconditional, how in many situations we should decide and, and commit to show favor, commit to show goodness and love to those who sin against us, whether the person who has sin against, sinned against us uh, sees the wrong they've done or not, and whether they've asked explicitly for forgiveness or not. We should just forgive them proactively. Proactively. In many situations, forgiveness ought not to be conditioned upon the the offenders, the sinners acknowledgement of their sin or even their repentance or things like that. And if this is the case, then in many situations, forgiveness on our part is merely a commitment of the heart. It doesn't require a meeting with the person, it doesn't require a discussion with the person doesn't require mediation with the person. It's just something we do before the Lord in our hearts and then we move on. Now one passage that I think teaches us as much is Mark chapter 11 and verse 25 and I'd encourage you to turn there just so you can see this with your own eyes. Mark chapter 11 verse 25 where Jesus says very simply and and really without much context, this about forgiveness. He says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus is, is uh, speaking to his disciples here in, in context about the need to have a faith that bears fruit. And one of the fruits that Jesus says we should seek to bear from our faith in him is the fruit of forgiveness, that we so rejoice in the grace that God has given us in Christ that we be happy to show grace to those who sin against us. And if you notice here, the language Jesus uses is pretty wide. It's pretty comprehensive. He says, whenever you stand praying, whenever you stand praying, that's, Probably like in the in the synagogue, at the temple, whenever you are coming before the Lord to worship him with his people, Jesus says, whenever you do that, forgive. And forgive, he says, if you have anything against anyone. Like that could include a lot of different things and a lot of different people, right? It's kind of like saying, whatever it is, whatever they've done to you, probably thinking of people that you might be standing there worshiping the Lord with, Jesus says, forgive them. Forgive them. You mean like right here on the spot, Jesus? Like right now, just, just forgive them right here before God and, and I think Jesus would say, based on what he says here, yeah, that's it. Like right here right now before god as you are bringing your needs to him in prayer forgive them that sure sounds to me like a proactive commitment of the heart like just do it be done move on give grace and don't make much more about it and and friends i just want to draw some application here from the time and the place the setting that where jesus says these sorts of proactive heart decisions are made what does he say Whenever you stand praying, forgive. The context is that of worship, probably of corporate worship with the people of God in the presence of God. Gatherings like this, times like this, when you're standing and singing songs of praise to a good and sovereign and wise and gracious God who has saved you through the blood of His Son, while you're standing there praying with Pastor Kyle, as he uh, prays that God would help us worship him in spirit and in truth, while you're standing at attention and in reverence to hear God's word sound out in our gathering, while we're sitting here under his word, receiving the truth of God and who he is and what he has done to save us in and through his son, while we eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus in the Lord's Supper, like what better time? than to resolve in your heart to give grace to that sinner in your life that you've been struggling to love and to forgive. In many situations, forgiveness is merely a proactive commitment of the heart. It's just a pledge that you make in the presence of God, the presence of a God who has so fully forgiven you in Christ. In many situations this is what forgiveness is. Not necessarily in all situations, but in many situations. And that leads us to principle number two for our time this morning. And that is forgiveness should sometimes be expressed with words. Forgiveness should sometimes be expressed with words. And in many ways, I think this principle is fairly self-evident, right? Like, when you sin against another person and you know that you 've hurt them and you know that you've damaged your relationship with them, is it a blessing to hear directly from that person that they have forgiven you? Is that a blessing? Have you ever had that happen? it's an immense blessing it's a wonderful blessing. Of course it is. Now, a passage that comes to mind here that, that teaches this, I think, is in second Corinthians. it's second Corinthians chapter two verses five through eight. Um, where a man in the church who has been confronted and probably even formally disciplined by the church, at one point being excommunicated, it seems, from the gathering of the church, from the fellowship of the church until he repented, that man has come to his senses. And by God's grace, he's been brought to repentance and now he's back in the church. But... He still apparently seems to be struggling with sorrow and remorse over his sin and the trouble that he has caused in the church. And I just just want you to listen or, or see for yourself what Paul says to the Corinthian church there in those verses, helping them know how they ought to treat this guy. Okay, Second Corinthians chapter two, verse five. He says, "Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's talking about this particular person." He has caused it, not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. This discipline, this act of discipline is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, Paul says, to reaffirm your love for him. This is a man who needs to hear forgiveness expressed. He needs to hear forgiveness expressed to him explicitly and clearly and maybe even repeatedly so that he's not overwhelmed, Paul says, by excessive sorrow. So that the sorrow that he is inevitably going to feel because of his sin and is inescapable because of his sin doesn't become such a weight upon him that he can't function joyfully in fellowship with God's people so that he may be restored to full and real, joyful fellowship in the church and feel confident that he is truly accepted both by the Lord and by his people, he needs to hear that he's been forgiven. Now this is undoubtedly you know, an extreme sort of example, but you get the point. Sometimes for the good of your relationship with the person, maybe even for the encouragement of the person who has sinned, they need to hear that they've been forgiven. And letting them hear it from you, is, believe it or not, as hard as it may be, is actually really good for you too. And certainly good for your relationship with the person. So although forgiveness in many situations is just, and I think purely, merely a commitment of the heart in certain situations, it's good and really good to express your forgiveness to the person, to grant it to them explicitly and lovingly. So that's principle number two. But let's also say this. We'll call it principle number three. Forgiveness is best expressed to a person who has first confessed their need for it. Forgiveness is best expressed to a person who has first confessed their need for it. Telling telling a person who doesn't know that they've sinned or who doesn't think that they've done anything sinful, telling that person that you have forgiven them seems a bit backwards, doesn't it? And probably a little counterproductive. Like, you know, you don't know this, but you were a real jerk to me two weeks ago. And I remember explicitly what you did and what you said. And it was really, really bad. And it caused me a lot of pain. But I just want you to know... That I've forgiven you. I've forgiven you for that, right? Or, or this morning you spoke to me in a very harsh sort of way, and and you didn't notice it. Obviously, you didn't notice that. You just kept on going. But I want you to know that I've forgiven you for what you've said. I mean, what do you say to that? Like, thank you. Thanks. I was doing fine until you told me that you forgave me for something I didn't know I needed to be forgiven of. If they don't know that they've sinned, it, it doesn't, doesn't do a whole lot of good to tell them that they've been forgiven. Now, there might be exceptions to this. Maybe in a marriage, you're able to say this like, you know, a year down the road or something. You know that day that we had that fight? I was really mad at you, but I've, I've forgiven you for that. There might be contexts where you could say something like this, and it's not just this backhanded sort of thing. But generally speaking, it does a lot more good to express forgiveness to a person who knows they need it from you. Think of the way, turn to Luke 17. Luke chapter 17. Think of the way that Jesus talks about this there. Luke 17 verses 3 and 4. He says his disciples pay attention to yourselves if your brother sins rebuke him and if he repents forgive him and if he sins against you seven times in the day we're going to come back to that and turns to you seven times saying i repent you must forgive him if he comes to you and asks for forgiveness you need to forgive him and I certainly don't take Jesus as saying here that in every case you have to wait for the person to ask for your forgiveness before you actually commit to do them good. I don't think that's his point. But that you need to express forgiveness certainly and particularly to those who come to you asking you for it and acknowledging what they've done to you, which means that for you to express forgiveness to an offender, they really do in the vast majority of situations need to ask you for it first. If for no other reason than for their own good. Because it's best for them. They need to see their sin. They need to admit their sin before they hear the expression of forgiveness. That you've already resolved in your heart to grant to them. But they need to see their sin before you express it to them explicitly. Now... If you have read some of the books on forgiveness written by Christian authors, you might hear them, or or biblical counselors or whatnot. You might hear them distinguish between what they call attitudinal forgiveness and transactional or relational forgiveness, something like that. And all they're really doing is making the same distinction that we've made here. Oftentimes, forgiveness is merely an attitude, a decision of the heart. It's a commitment to uh, show grace to a person and just move on. You just decide in your heart to do it and you move on. That's often what forgiveness is. But in other situations, certain situations, forgiveness needs to be expressed. There needs to be a transaction of forgiveness with the person who has sinned against you. Sometimes it's just a matter of the heart that's attitudinal forgiveness while other times it needs to be granted it needs to be expressed to the offender what you could call transactional forgiveness or relational forgiveness attitudinal forgiveness the decision of the heart the commitment of the heart is always called for always commanded there is never an excuse before god not to grant forgiveness to someone who has sinned against you in your heart attitudinal forgiveness is always commanded and in some situations, so is transactional forgiveness. You've got to express it to the person. So many times, forgiveness is merely a proactive commitment of the heart. That's principle number one. But sometimes forgiveness needs to be expressed to the person, which is principle number two. And in those situations where forgiveness needs to be expressed, forgiveness really needs to be sought out by the person who has sinned. That's principle number three. That leads to principle number four. The expression of forgiveness must sometimes be preceded by loving confrontation. The expression of forgiveness must sometimes be preceded by loving confrontation. Let's go back. And uh, I'm not going to apologize for all the flipping. But I'm sorry for all the flipping. Matthew chapter 18. Sorry, not sorry. Matthew 18. Just want to have it in front of us here. Because the subject as we've heard, as we've talked about so far, the, the subject here is that of dealing with sin in the church and granting forgiveness to those who sin against us. And I, I think here in Matthew 18, thinking specifically about verses 15 to 20, Primarily, in that section, Jesus, I think, is envisioning here situations where a person in the church has sinned or is sinning in a way that, as one pastor put it, uh, a way that's serious and unrepentant. This is Jesus talking about how to deal with serious, unrepentant sin in the church, sins that just can't be simply put up with sins that can't just be proactively forgiven and put away, sins that are really causing serious damage to the person or are hurting other people in the church in a significant way, and sins that the person hasn't yet acknowledged and hasn't yet confessed and hasn't yet turned from. This is serious, unrepentant sin. Jesus says in such cases we should desire to express forgiveness, both ours and the Lord's, to the person who has sinned or is sinning in these ways. But before we can rightly do that, the person needs to see their sin. And so what Jesus indicates here in Matthew 18, verses 15 and, and following, the few verses after that, is that people in these situations may need to be shown their sin before forgiveness can be rightly and wisely expressed to them. That's why he says in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, or just if your brother sins, depending on the manuscripts that we go with there, he says, go and tell him his fault. And if he's not convinced he's in sin or willing to admit his sin, then take two or three others with you to talk to him again. And then Jesus says, if that doesn't work, encourage the whole church to reach out to the person and help them see what they've done. Why do all of this? Why go through the, this, this process of confrontation? The answer is because sometimes people need to be confronted before they can see their sin rightly. Sometimes they need to be confronted before they can make things right with the Lord and with his people. Jesus indicates here that in some situations you just can't express forgiveness quickly. The person has to see what they've done. And if they can't see it on their own, they might very well need some help from God's people. Sometimes a person needs to be shown their sin before they will see it and before they will seek forgiveness for it. So in those situations where it's important for forgiveness to be expressed, and thus is necessary for the sinning person to seek that forgiveness out, confrontation might be necessary to help that person along. And though this is probably worth a sermon all of its own, let me just add to this and say that in any situation where confrontation is needed, the good of the sinner and the glory of God should always be the goal. The good of the sinning person and the glory of God should always be the goal. The goal has to always be, it must always be their spiritual good. The, the purpose of confrontation is not just to get things off your chest so that you feel better. It's not to vent, you know, just an opportunity to vent and let, you know, let some pressure out. It's not to make them feel what you have felt. It's not to shame them and make them feel really bad for what they've done. The point of confrontation is to help a person be restored to an obedient relationship with the Lord and a peaceful relationship with his people and a loving relationship with those that they've sinned against. If you can't confront a person with the sincere desire to do them good, then deal with yourself first before you go to them so that your words might be filled with love and not with sins of your own. As Jesus would suggest, Matthew chapter 7, that we get the logs out of our own eyes so that we can see clearly to help our brothers with the specks in theirs. And if and when you can confront in love for the good of the person and the glory of God, assuming confrontation is truly needed, and you have to determine that before the Lord, if you can do it in love and for God's glory, then go in the grace of Christ. And seek to win your brother and sister, knowing that Christ is with you every step of the way as you do so. There's a great promise in Matthew 18 uh, that Jesus gives to his church as they're dealing with sin faithfully in the church. Jesus says in verse 20 in Matthew 18, for where two or three are gathered in my name, that is where where a church is dealing with sin in a faithful way, even if it's just a couple people trying to honor the Lord as they deal with sin in the church. I there am with them, Jesus says. So sometimes confrontation is necessary before forgiveness can be expressed. That's principle number five. Now let's get to principle number or That's principle number four, right? Now let's go to number five, and this might be a hard one for some to receive. The principle is whenever forgiveness is sought, forgiveness ought to be granted. Whenever forgiveness is sought, forgiveness ought to be granted or forgiveness ought to be expressed, we could say. And, and by all means, don't take my word for this. Let's listen to our Lord speak to this issue. We'll start in Matthew 18. And look at verses 21 and 22. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Peter thinks He's being generous. Peter thinks he's he's going overboard here by saying that he might be willing to forgive his brother seven times. Jesus says seven times is stingy for his people. I do not say to you seven times, Jesus says, but 70 times seven. Now, if we take this very literally, if we take this mathematically, it's very dangerous for a pastor to do math, especially in front of people. If we take this very literally, Jesus is saying, you've got to forgive your brother how many times? 490 times. And yet, I don't think Jesus is doing literal math here or wanting us to do math here. I think he's just giving them a very big, very comp- uh, pl- complete, very comprehensive number to communicate that you should be ready to forgive your brother at all times, at all times, and to forgive the same brother or the same sister of as many sins as they commit against you. He says something very similar in Luke 17. We just read that a minute ago. It's worth returning to again, Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Jesus says, and notice how he starts. He says, pay attention to yourselves. Like, what an what a introduction. The point is that you're not going to want to do this. You're not going to want to go this far. Your heart is not going to lead you to this. Only the commands of Jesus will. Pay attention to yourselves, Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Okay, so confrontation is necessary at times. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must, you must forgive him. It, it's, it's almost a comical picture, right? If, if your brother sins, sure, go ahead and rebuke him. We like that confront him, tell him that he's done something sinful. But then if he turns to you and seeks your forgiveness, he tells you he's sorry. He's saying, oh, I, I don't. I'm, I shouldn't have done this. I want to repent. Then Jesus says, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the same day and asks for your forgiveness seven times, then you must, Jesus says, you must forgive him. And if we put all this together, we have to conclude that there's never an excuse, ever an excuse for a Christian to withhold forgiveness from a person who is asking you for it. And, and an obvious question here would be, well, how do you know? How do I know he's really repentant? Jesus doesn't say, wait until you know he's really repentant. He says, if he says to you, I repent, then you forgive him. And if he says to you seven times in the same day, I repent, then forgive him. It's not your job to know if he's really repentant. You are not omniscient. You do not see all. You do not judge the heart. You cannot weigh the intentions of a human heart. You have enough trouble measuring the intentions of your own heart, let alone the intentions of someone else. You forgive the person who asks you for forgiveness and you let God deal with that person's soul. And by this, Jesus is not saying, I don't believe that you have to be, or I don't think Jesus is saying that you have to be best buds with a repeat offender. That, that you just have to fully trust the repeat offender just because they ask you to forgive them. I don't think that's the point. We'll get into that in just a minute. But that for the person who asks you to forgive them, you have to commit to showing that person grace in return for their sin and express to them that this is your commitment to them. Even if they repeat the sin seven times a day for 70 days in a row. Every time this has to be your response to which I'll admit, I'll be honest, my heart hears that and reacts, and I just think, that's nuts. That's bananas. That's too much. That's not reasonable. That makes me too vulnerable. That doesn't protect me. That's insane, which if you look back at Matthew 18, Matthew chapter 18 is exactly why Jesus goes on to tell the story about an unforgiving servant. Matthew 18, verses 23 through 35, the rest of the chapter. This parable is of, of a servant forgiven by his master of an exorbitant, unpayable debt. That, that's what the story's about. The servant is forgiven a ridiculous debt, a, a debt that would take several thousand lifetimes to pay back, who then goes on, and refuses to forgive a debtor of his own who owes him very, very little in proportion. It's just this ridiculous story that Jesus tells to illustrate the folly, the foolishness, the sinfulness of his people refusing to forgive those who sin against them. Not just of sins that are great in magnitude, but of sins that are great in number. One takeaway from the parable of the unforgiving servant is that Christ's people, because they have been so richly and fully forgiven by God, should be people who are ready and willing to forgive not just the terrible, great and terrible sins of others against them, but to forgive the great and terrible number of the sins of others against them. You notice what sparks this parable is Peter's question, how many times should I forgive? How many sins should I forgive? And then Jesus goes on to tell this story. So it's not just my great sins that have been forgiven by our, my master, right? It's not just my big sins that have been forgiven by God in Christ. It is my countless sins that have been forgiven by God in Christ. It's my whole mass of sins, my whole pile of sin, every single sin that I've ever committed, every prohibition of God that I've ignored or failed to heed, every command of God that I've failed to keep, all of my sins. And if you are in Christ, all of your sins, every single one has been forgiven by God in Christ. And therefore, the takeaway from this passage is that you ought to be ready to forgive all of their sins, the sins of others, against you. Not just certain sins, not just big sins, but the whole number of sins they commit against you. Well, that's principle number five. There's more we could say about that. Let's move to principle number six. I think this brings some needed balance to the discussion, some needed balance to this issue. Principle number six is that even when forgiveness is sought and granted, relational consequences may sometimes remain. Even when forgiveness is sought and granted, relational consequences may sometimes remain. Puritan scholar and commentator named Matthew Poole. Really good Puritan commentator on scripture. He's writing in the 17th century. Um, he had this to say about Jesus' command to forgive our brothers 70 times 7 in Matthew 18. He, he says there in his commentary on that passage that our Savior by this precept, by this command, does not oblige any of us to take his enemy into his bosom. That's like, take him, you know, receive him, hug him, coddle him, love him forever. And make him his intimate or confidant again. He's not saying that. But only to lay aside all malice, all thoughts and desires of revenge towards him. To put on a charitable frame of spirit towards him so as to be ready to do him any common offices of friendship. Okay, so that's just a way to say, just because you forgive someone doesn't mean you have to be BFFs with them. I think this clarification is very important. This is where we go back to the simple definition of forgiveness that we've been working with. Forgiveness is a commitment to treat a person who has sinned against you with grace, with love, with favor. It's a, it's a pledge to return love to a person who has sinned against you. Now, is the only way to keep this commitment, that of erasing all relational boundaries with a person and just enter into an intimate, confidential, super close relationship with them? Is that the only way to show them grace? No, not at all. You don't do that with everyone as it is. Relational consequences may remain between people who have sought and granted forgiveness between one another. After pledging your forgiveness to a person who has sinned against you, you may then also apply, and you should also apply, all kinds of other biblical wisdom principles to determine what your relationship with that person should look like from this point on. A wife whose husband has committed adultery can forgive her husband and can still wrestle carefully with the question of whether the marriage should be restored or can be restored. An employer with an employee who was stolen from him can forgive that person and still fire him. Uh, you can forgive someone who commits a crime against you and still call the police. You can forgive someone who's been gossiping about you for a year, a person that you thought was your good friend, and still decide not to tell that person a whole lot about what's going on in your very personal life going forward. You can forgive a person who has a pattern of being harsh with you and overly critical with you and still not choose to pursue a close friendship with them. Okay? And so on. You can forgive and still because of wisdom, have relational consequences that exist in your relationship with that person. Another way to say this is that forgiveness is not reconciliation. It is not reconciliation. Forgiveness does and should often lead to reconciliation. When it comes to our relationship with God, forgiveness certainly does lead to reconciliation. But as it concerns relationships between sinners it doesn't always need to do so. So whereas in most cases, most cases, forgiveness should and can be unconditional, really in every case true reconciliation is conditional by necessity. You you can only restore a relationship with someone who's willing to do what it takes to restore that relationship. And and I think scripture clearly leads us in this direction. For example, you know, there's a lot to take into account here, but for starters, Scripture says explicitly that you cannot reconcile with a person who is clearly unrepentant. You can't. God doesn't fellowship with the unrepentant he doesn't save the unrepentant. He doesn't want us to enjoy fellowship with the unrepentant either. In fact, there's commands against having fellowship with those who are unrepentant. Paul says uh, in one Corinthians fifteen, "Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals." If if they are clearly unrepentant, and I'm saying clearly unrepentant, not you have questions, you have concerns or whatever, but they're obviously unrepentant, you can't reconcile with them. It's just not possible. You can forgive them, but you can't reconcile with them. So that's, that's one thing to keep in mind. Similarly, I think there are other biblical reasons to say that you aren't necessarily called or commanded to reconcile with a person who's committed a grievous sin against you, a harmful sin against you. I would argue that this is why God says that uh, adulterous sexual sin is grounds for divorce for his disciples. For people who are seeking to follow and honor him, if there's adultery in a marriage, then divorce is a legitimate option, according to Jesus. And I've heard Christians just make mush of that and say that Jesus is like giving his disciples an out in this one situation. They can do something really stupid and sinful in this one situation. And I think that's absurd. Jesus is saying, in these cases, these extreme cases, it's a legitimate option for someone who's trying to honor Him to pursue divorce. That's just an example. Is there, if you, if you, a passage to look at would be Matthew six verses thirty-one and thirty-two. Jesus says nothing there about whether the adulterous spouse repents or not. Indicating that divorce is a God-honoring option for his, his followers in certain cases. Even in some cases where a spouse may have repented, it could be an option. So, when it comes to relationships between sinners in a fallen world, Scripture does not equate, it doesn't put forgiveness and reconciliation together in the same box. These are two different things. Many Christians do put them in the same box. Many Christians do put, I think, unbiblical expectations both on themselves and others when it comes to forgiveness, saying, no, 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 you got you to gotta get right back in there and be best buds with the person. And I don't see that in Scripture at all. And even if recon- reconciliation would seem to be the best and most God-honoring thing for two people to pursue with one another, even in those cases where reconciliation is possible, there's nothing in Scripture that says it has to be immediate. It could be a process that you work towards. In some situations, reconciliation may not be possible at all. Sometimes it might be a relatively long process, and all that's okay and legitimate. So that's principle number six. One more, and then we'll close. Principle number what is it? Seven? Told you math is dangerous. Number seven, whenever forgiveness is required of you, God is drawing you into a time of spiritual growth. We're going to sort of back up, lift, lift up above all this fog with this one. Whenever forgiveness is required of you, God is drawing you into a time of spiritual growth. And this is where I really want for us to land in hopes that maybe at least some of the fog has been cleared and we can see a little bit more clearly down the road to where God is leading us in situations where our forgiveness might be required. I want to just close by reminding us all of what God is doing in our lives in situations where people sin against us and, and where we have to learn to forgive them. Wherever, whenever forgiveness is required of you, God is graciously drawing you into a time of spiritual growth. If you're a Christian, he's not out to harm you. He's not out to hurt you. He's out to grow you. Turn quickly with me to Colossians chapter 3, where we started a few weeks ago, Colossians 3 verses 12 and 13, so we can all see this for ourselves. Paul says in Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13, "...put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive." The context of this chapter, Colossians 3, is the sanctification of every Christian. The process by which Christians become more and more devoted to God, the process by which they become grow in love for Jesus Christ. And as verse 12 makes clear here, part of the process of sanctification involves becoming more compassionate and involves becoming kinder to others and more humble in your dealings with others, and meeker in your dealings with others, and more patient with others. All these are, these are virtues that we're called to put on here to intentionally pursue and practice as Christians. We're commanded to grow in compassion, and grow in kindness, and grow in humility, and grow in meekness, and grow in patience, which sounds great. It just sounds so good, right? Like, who wouldn't become, want to become more like this? Any Christian would and should. The question is, in the context of these verses, how are you going to do that? How are you going to grow in compassion? How are you going to grow in kindness and humility and meekness and patience with others? Well, if you take the language of verse 13 seriously, and if you notice, this is all part of one sentence. Verse 13 modifies verse 12 directly. The way that you're going to learn to grow in compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience is by having to deal with people who require these things from you and with whom exemplifying these virtues will not come naturally to you. You will grow in these virtues as you have to bear with other sinners and as you're put in situations where you have to forgive other sinners. C.S. Lewis once said, I think really appropriately, everyone says that forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. He also says that anytime you bring forgiveness up in the church, it's going to be melt with, or met with uh, howls of anger. Thankfully, that's not the case this morning. But he's right. Everyone thinks it's a lovely idea. Oh yeah, be, be more forgiving until someone sins against you then uh, I'm not so sure I want to be more forgiving. Likewise, everyone thinks compassion is a good idea and kindness is a good idea and humility is a good idea and meekness is a, mean, a good idea and patience are, is a good idea until they're put in situations with people who require extra measures of those virtues to deal with in a way that honors God. And yet, this is the only way you're going to grow in these virtues. It's, it's the way, it's, it's the way and, it's by, and if it's not the way, it's at least the most direct way by far to becoming more sanctified, to becoming more holy, to becoming more devoted to God and to learning to live faithfully in obedience to him as his redeemed people. So next time you find yourself in a situation where your forgiveness of another sinner might be required, and especially in a situation like that where forgiveness is just super hard to come by and hard to practice, and you wonder, what might the Lord be doing in my life in this? There may be a thousand other things that he's doing along with this, but he's never doing any less than this. He is calling you into a time of sustan- substantial spiritual growth. He's, he's driving your roots deeper into him and deeper into the gospel and sending up nutrients to the branches of your life so that you might bear real spiritual fruit for his glory. And we're talking real spiritual fruit and not just churchy fruit. Whether it's with people that you just need to forgive quickly and proactively, or whether it's with those very difficult people who have sinned against you grievously. In either case, God is out for your good, and he's out for your spiritual growth. You don't necessarily need to start like sprinting through this fog, but with Christ standing with you in it, you surely can start walking your way through it. And if that's true, if Christ is with us, and if Christ is intending good for us in these situations, we can and we must learn to forgive as we have been forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are such a richly forgiving God that in Christ, all of our sins have been paid for and washed away and cleansed from our record and are no longer, because of Jesus, being held against us. We thank you that you are a God who is gracious to sinners, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving transgression and iniquity and sin. And Lord, we we know that that is true in your dealings with us. We thank you for the forgiveness we have in Christ that it is so full and so comprehensive and so final. And we pray that in situations where we are sinned against, especially in those really bad ways and repeated ways and difficult ways that you would, you would help us um, turn the grace that has been poured into our lives and upon our heads, turn that grace out to our offenders. Teach us to forgive as you have forgiven us. Make us more forgiving and do it for your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name, Amen.